faster, stronger, smarter. Coach Stephanie explores the art and science of ketogenic diets to optimize athletic performance. Welcome to the Keto Endurance Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Coach Stephanie, and I'm here with Amber O'Hearn, and she is a zero-carb expert and has her own website or blog, Empirica, and has been, um, and she's very active on Twitter, and I just wanted to talk to her about her zero-carb experience. Sure. So I started on a ketogenic diet back in 1997, and I was really fascinated by all the science behind it, but when I was a bit older, I, I found that I had started to gain weight despite being on a ketogenic diet, and what helped for me is to scale all the way back to a plant-free diet, and that just really unlocked a lot of health. Um, I didn't consider myself to be someone with a lot of health issues, but I did have a mood disorder, and that went completely into remission when I got the plants out of my diet, as well as losing, it had gone up to as high as 60 pounds overweight that I lost when I went zero carb. And so, oh, that's awesome. yeah, it was wonderful. And I had started writing things in forums. I was very active in forums and I was always reading stuff on the internet. But there's a frustration that comes when you, you write things, but the the forums might not be very easy to search or you don't actually have control over that resource. And so it, you know, that database or forum could go away. And at a certain point, it, it became, I decided that I wanted to have my own place to collect things and just have put my view of the world in one space. And so that's how I got started writing. And that was not until 2012. I had already been doing a zero-carb carnivorous diet for, I guess, three years. Did you read something on zero-carb or, um, I know a lot of folks read the Stefanson, I can't. Apparently, I can't talk today, but the, <laughs> the, the explorers who were in the Arctic, um, many accounts of their diet, was that any, did that have any influence on you? Yes, but it wasn't the first thing that I found. The first thing that I found was just a small group of people on a forum, which was called Zeroing In on Health. It doesn't exist anymore, but, um, or it may have had a, a complete reboot, and that was it was Charles Washington who was behind that and other people that are still doing a zero carb diet. And they, they, what they had found was that all these people who already were doing a very low carb diet, but not seeing the results that they wanted had come to this either independently or under the influence of each other. And so they were talking about it there. And it was through them that I actually about Stefanson and uh, Asley Stanley the Bear and other people who had experiences with it in the past that I didn't know anything about until I went there. I heard about Zero Carb through a fellow coach named Peter Defty, and you may or may not be familiar with him. He has this company called Vespa Power. Yes, I have met him. Peter's a friend of mine. He was telling me about it because I haven't, I've been eating low carb for a long time 
and really have never leaned down to where I wanted. And even though you had said in your post, like, that you're not an athlete, I've been an athlete for many years and uh, don't have the body that I would like. And he mentioned that maybe I should try Zero Carb, and he sent me to Esme website. Zero Carb then? Yeah, Zero Carb. The only thing I could think of is eat meat, drink water. Yes. <laughs> and then I started reading those uh, success stories, and they were so inspiring about people who have really took on a Zero Carb diet and their health you know, turned around. Some people it took a matter of weeks and other people it took years. And uh, I think everybody who she interviews has followed Zero Carb for at least a year. Yes, yes, she has a great resource going. Those testimonials are very powerful because it just shows the kind of breadth of conditions that normally we often don't think have anything to do with diet, like this is just my genetic fate or this is something that I will have to live with because it's part of who I am. And to see that so many of those conditions actually can be affected by diet is is really stunning. And I don't even know why some of those things happen. For instance, a lot of conditions that are autoimmune in nature, or at least if you look at the testimonials, let's put it this way, if you look at the testimonials, you can see that a lot of the conditions that have resolved for people, at least in these anecdotes, have been autoimmune in nature. So asthma or arthritis or even uh, Lyme disease and other things that we just don't have a good handle on and we tend to think of them as something you have for life. And in my case as well, I had a form of bipolar disorder and nobody, that just doesn't go away by itself. (laughs) So it was really stunning to have that happen as a side effect, basically. I wasn't doing it for that purpose. Yeah, I mean, I started zero carb because I wanted to get leaner and my, well, low carb in general, but, and my asthma is completely gone. So I, I have an autoimmune disease that is gone since I switched to low carb. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. I was on $80 a month was my copay for all the asthma medication I was on. And I would go to the doctor and ask him, I'm like, hey, uh, is there, why do I have asthma? Because you have to have those six-month yearly check-ins. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, just some people have and some people don't. And I thought, that's a really lame answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's really. Not an answer at all. <laughs> that's not an answer. Like, like, do you not think critically at all that you can't think there has to be a cause and effect? And uh, um, a little bit about me, I, but I, I, my degree is in anthropology, so I was an archaeologist before I became a coach. Oh, fascinating. And I, yeah, I was an archaeologist. Then I had kids, and kids and being an archaeologist are not, not compatible. <laughs> so, well, I, I should say you could have kids, but wanting to be a good parent, there is not compatible. At least for the job I had, I was a field archaeologist, and we were out in the field quite a bit, and. Something that I noticed is that, you know, all these cultures, there's not a single culture that didn't eat meat, but there are lots of cultures who 
didn't eat vegetables were a few. I mean, they're yes. Even even primates like chimpanzees and uh, bonobos, they still eat meat. <laughs> so it's uh, it just seemed to me like, well, that's got to be something that should cultures are seeking out. Probably that should be a good part of your diet. Yes. Well, meat is there's a technical term from nutritional ecology called dietary quality. So when I say this, I'm not making a a judgment. I'm using the technical term. But meat is considered the highest quality food in a diet. And plants are lower quality. Uh, Fiber plants, like the structural parts of plants, are the lowest quality. And the reproductive plants are a little higher quality. And, And the way that's measured is just in terms of available and available protein and available nutrients, and you, you need all of that. And if you have a good source of animal protein and animal fat, along with all the nutrients that it comes with, and you can you have the physiological capability of digesting it, then that's going to go a long way to getting you everything you need. Well, I have a couple of degrees in computer science. So that's what I studied, and I was working as a data scientist until very recently. So software engineer is not a title that I've ever had, but what I do is very similar to what a software engineer would do, and sometimes in some cases the same. Do you think that analytical thinking or you know has helped you with being critical about what to eat? Absolutely. I came to computer science through math, which was my first love, and math is, it's basically logic, and so I had that already as an asset, but there's something else that I recently realized that I hadn't thought all the way through, and it was an insight from Gary Taubes, actually. He was speaking at the Low Carb USA San Diego event last weekend, and he said that the the medical tradition is based on following authority in much more so than the scientific tradition in which questioning is taught to a greater degree. And after I thought about that for a while, it really explained to me a lot about how you can have sciences that seem to be a lot more open to having different explanations that are less that seem less constrained by what's already been said. It makes a lot of sense whenever you talk about following authority and the protocols that hospitals have and they're like baking a cake. You have to follow the recipe exactly. You have elevated you need this pill to fix it as opposed to thinking what's the the cause and effect of going on with the system Mm -hmm. I have started to recognize that it's been a a fortunate thing that I didn't go into medicine which I easily could have done because I was very interested in medicine for a long time or medical things and biology and science and I think that a lot of people that are in medicine are actually really smart but the tradition isn't fostering that kind of thinking and it's worse than that because once you are a medical professional, you're, you have this 
liability issue. So you, if you try to go out on a limb, if you see something that you think might be improved by a different way of thinking and it doesn't pan out, you could be in a lot of trouble and in, in, in some cases actually being banned or losing your license. So I feel quite fortunate that I don't have any of those constraints. My hands aren't tied. I don't have quite the ability to help people that I might if I were in the medical profession. But then again, I can say whatever I think is actually true and I can change my mind. And I can tell people this is what I think and why I think it. And you can believe me or not, but you might consider it. The, at least here in the United States, they're confined by the standard of care that they have to follow. So even if something is ridiculous, if it's a standard of care, I mean, like a lot of the treatments for cancer, uh, if they don't follow it, they could be reprimanded even if following it is not necessarily beneficial for the patient. Right. It's a sad situation. I feel fortunate that we live in a time that there's so many resources online available that I found my own way through, um, you know, friends like Peter and um, reading blogs and stuff to come to a low carb and zero carb diet and found that I can just tell that I feel better from eating that way. So we have access to information more than at any time, I believe, probably in the past. Mm-hmm. What did you, um, what was your favorite thing about Low Carb USA? Oh, that is a tricky question. There were so many good talks, and it was great to be in the midst of that. All the excitement, um, the attendance was really high. I think that Doug said that it was, the organizer said that it was over 600. I may have misheard him, but I think that's what he said. But the, really the, best part of the whole thing was getting to meet and talk to so many people, both people whose names you might recognize, which is, you know, exciting, and I get to ask them questions, and also people who are just starting and um, to feel their excitement as they are learning how to take care of themselves better. So to me, the conference is attending the conference is so much more than just the the talks themselves right i agree i had a i mean i was just at a conference in boulder at the endurance coaching summit networking with the other coaches was super exciting and one of the other researcher a researcher in low carbohydrate performance, Paul Larson was there and he was speaking and I got to spend a lot of time talking to him, which is super exciting. And, uh, and I, so I can imagine there's like all the big names in low carb that most of us are, well, people who've been reading low carb are familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, were probably there. And, uh, that's how I became also, aware of Peter Defty because he was speaking at low carb bail. And oh, so I saw him give a presentation, yeah. was very impressed with his work. And then I, there was a session after in which I mentioned my diet, and he came up to me after and said that he 
he didn't think that it, it was something that in his world he could advocate for very much, but that he suspected that a lot of people would benefit from it. Yes. In the carb, in the endurance sports arena, there's a huge um, attachment to carbohydrates. It's a really frustrating. <laughs> so not only do they think that that carbs are necessary to perform at a high level, they also believe that you have to train your body to take up more carbohydrates. So even beyond what, like the 300 grams a day, you have to actually train your body to take more, which I think is very irresponsible, especially because in endurance sports, many older athletes, like let's say there's a 45-year-old businessman who feels like they want to accomplish something, so they sign up for an Ironman triathlon. So they already have the stress of a high-carbohydrate diet and a sedentary lifestyle. Then you're adding in swimming, biking, and running training, which causes stress and inflammation. And then trying to take in more carbohydrates because theoretically that you're going to make you faster. If you're a Kenyan and very insulin sensitive, probably it would make you faster. But if you're a 45-year-old athlete who's coming off the couch and wants to achieve an endurance goal, probably not the best combination for good health. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it's it's been a really long time while those while people have hung on to those ideas, even in the face of research such as Finney and Bullock have been doing for a really long time. Um, when when you look back at how long it's been since they started showing that it it is a viable diet for endurance athletes. It's, there are still a lot of hangers-on in the bodybuilding community, too, and that tide is starting to change with groups like Keto Games, who... who oh, they, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I do, too, and they they are there to... One of the things that they demonstrate is that you don't need carbs to bulk up either or to get strong, you know? really is what it comes down to. And I tried, I did the Keto Gains Boot Camp just to go through their program and see what it was about and what it was like. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was very well structured, but I can tell you it doesn't, it's not at all compatible with an endurance athlete. But uh, So I, I thought it was funny whenever they put like endurance and I was like that your program is not, does not work for endurance, but they are very, very good at what they do, and I would recommend to anyone who wanted to do weightlifting or a bodybuilding program to do keto gains. Plus, they're just like cool people. I don't know if you read the keto gains um, Facebook group post at all. A little bit. But Tyler, who's lost, I don't know how many pounds, but he, um, over 100, but he's just so refreshing to read his post and honest and uh calls people on out on their crap of making excuses or comparing themselves to other people i believe really helps people achieve their goals of if your goal is just pure weight loss or bodybuilding i think their program's great 
if your goal is to complete a marathon or do an Ironman, not so good. <laughs> so, but yeah. they don't claim to do that either. The, um, but I guess Peter does. Oh, go on. I guess what I find interesting is that there there are different things that may not be compatible with each other, but for which a ketogenic diet shouldn't get in the way of your performance and may even enhance it. Yes. Well, it definitely does help, especially with endurance, increase endurance. And there are athletes, though, if you, um, I know Keto Gains calls it a targeted ketogenic diet, or um, Peter calls it uh, um, strategic carbs. So carbs do actually help your performance. So if you, um, but they also cause a lot of damage. So if you can use them at the right time, they'll make you faster not hurt you, not cause the damage that a high carbohydrate diet does. And a lot of it, how much carbohydrates are beneficial to you depends on your genetics and your age and your sleep and all kinds of different things. But, you know, that's the big problem with the old science of like, oh, let's carbs make you faster. So let's eat them all the time, which they sort of diminish their effect. If you consume them all the time, you become insulin resistant. And once you're insulin resistant, you don't get a bump from the carbo- from the additional carbohydrates. If you're super insulin sensitive, then um, whenever you do take in carbs, they'll give you a bump in energy and, and increase your performance. That makes sense to me. I sometimes have ingest called carbohydrates a performance enhancing drug. Yes, that's what Peter called. Does he? That's funny. <laughs> yes, and it is. It. I mean, uh, that's what I call it uh, as well. I wrote a blog post on it, like carbohydrates are a performance enhancing drug, especially if you use them right. I mean, and if you look at the definition of a performance enhancing drug, is the fact that they're addicting. <laughs> you know, drugs can be addicting. So can carbs. They are um, can cause damage in the incorrect dose, and uh, they do produce performance gains. So in all those categories, carbohydrates are a performance-enhancing drug. And I would imagine that in other performance-enhancing drugs as well, chronic use would diminish the effect that you would expect to get if you used it just at the right amount at the right time. They, they meet all those criteria. I was going to ask you about, uh, on your website, you did um, write an article about mindset. I was looking at, and I can't find it now, but it was a couple of years ago or last year. And it talked about when you had the job in, and you lived in a little small apartment. Oh, about happiness. Yes, about happiness. Do you think that your mindset plays a role in how well you adapt to a zero carb diet or, you know, in your diet as a whole? Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I could think about that, but the way that I usually think about it is kind of more from the other direction where you have a hierarchy of needs. So before you can get to your psychological needs, you have to have your physiological needs met. And there, that may not be really strictly true. You can probably work on both of them. But coming from the depression 
avenue, what I saw was that there were there's a vast literature of cognitive behavioral therapy, which in a lot of ways has to do with how you think about the world, that I studied and tried for a long time while I was depressed, and there was just, you, you couldn't talk yourself out of the kind of depressive episodes that I was having. And it wasn't until... I think my my brain was getting the support that it needed, that all of that lifted enough to where now working on the way that I think about things is taking my life to much greater heights, but it was completely inaccessible to me until I got to this basic level. I mean, that's wonderful. It is. I think that would be good news for people who suffer from bipolar disorder or any sort of depression that hey, even though some of these things are not working for you, here's one more tool in your tool chest to try. On the other hand, there are certain things that I think are necessary to make a dietary change of the magnitude that we're talking about work. And one of them is, well, willpower is not a big one of them, but you need temporary willpower. I know you have probably experienced this when going on to a low-carb diet and with a zero-carb diet, but there's that adaptation period. I don't know how long it took you to adapt to a ketogenic diet, but I think for me, around the four- or five-day mark, cravings are through the roof and tiredness. Oh, yeah. So your glycogen's gone, but you don't really have, you don't have ketones yet, and you don't have glucose, and you just feel like crap. And if you... If you give in then, you're, you're never going to get there. But if you, if once you've gotten over that hump, then, then it just sustains itself. But I think it, I think you need a little bit of faith and preparation to say, I'm going to give this a good go and it's not going to take too long before I know whether it's going to help me or not. If you don't, if you can't make that initial commitment, it's going to be really difficult. I agree, and I've been in in and out of those feelings of feeling satiated, feeling good, and then the part where you lose it. And I think a big part of it, a little monkey wrench, is when you add like endurance training and doing races, and then you start adding in the carbs, and that they make like once you taste it then it it brings back those cravings again so it's yeah sort of hard to balance that out and as a coach it's hard to you know sort of help my clients navigate through that because they want to perform at their highest level but a a lot of athletes that come to me have uh, they want to get leaner as well and some clients, I just tell them, don't add any more carbs in because they don't seem like they're helping you and they create, I'm, or they help you a little bit, but they create such damage on the back end that it it's hard for them to navigate back to feeling good. So it's a, um, it's a tricky one, and I agree that that's the hardest part. That's a really interesting point because one of the things that a lot of people who are successful on a carnivorous diet that it helps with is that there's there's total abstinence. So as soon as it's out of your system, you have you have a really 
strong, thick line. Like, I don't eat that. And so you you never, when you're carb counting, you can say, well, I can have maybe five grams of this and five grams of that. And then you may constantly be re-triggering those cravings in that same sort of way. Whereas with when you say, I'm going to have none, then that kind of re-triggering of the old habits doesn't come into play and you don't start making excuses where you say, well, I'll just have five more grams or, 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 you know, a quarter cup of nuts becomes a half a cup of nuts and it just gets out of control. When I'm more strict, it's easier to follow than when I'm doing zero carb and, and that's it. It's easier to follow than trying to do the strategic carbs or the targeted carbs like that makes it harder for me and cravings. And then, you know, I, I had mentioned earlier about social settings. I still have problems in social settings about the idea of being polite is by if someone offers you food to say yes. I mean, that's something that I was trained as a child and I've, I still have a hard time with that one. Yeah, I empathize. But you were saying that for just for staying keto, you're able to refuse things that don't fit on a ketogenic diet, right? I do, but sometimes I'm not the best. Like I, when I was in Colorado, my friend had some trail mix with some chocolate, and I started. I ate some of that, and then I wanted it the the rest of the time I was there. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's yeah. so it's not only, and some of it is just being in a new place. And when I have uh, stress, I definitely am a comfort eater. Like I I crave things that are not good, and then um, and I think also if I have any little bit of alcohol, that totally drops my reserves, which, you know, alcohol, I don't know if you've noticed or if you drink at all, but whenever your body's pretty deep in ketosis, alcohol, I think, has like three times the effect of when you're, you know, somebody who's a glucose burner. I have experienced so that. I, I don't know the exact science behind it, but uh, the first maybe three years that I ate no plants, I also cut out I kept coffee, but I I didn't drink any alcohol, and then I decided to try some, and and it seemed to be okay. It didn't affect my mood. It didn't affect my weight. Um, So since then, I've allowed myself to have a drink now and then, usually scotch, sometimes wine. But I I feel like I'm a a complete lightweight in a way that I never was yeah. before. And I can't, I went at one time I went on a mission to try to build up a tolerance because I had an event coming up. And so I tried to drink a lot of alcohol for several days and, and it didn't seem to have an effect in increasing the tolerance either, which, so I just was, you know, smashed for several nights in a row. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I I I would really like to look into the biochemistry of that more. I don't know the exact biochemistry, but I imagine because you know your liver is not full of glycogen because it's depleted. That's where your ketones are made in the liver. That I imagine that it's just like I don't know. This is like a it makes the alcohol quite a bit 
more potent. And I know that um, whenever I do drink more than like one or one and a half glasses of wine. So if I drink two glasses of wine, I'd be completely toasted. And then my reserves for eating garbage are like all down. So it's like I, I don't drink. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. And then I feel horrible. So it's like, a, um, I don't know if it's hangover or garbage food over or what it is, but I don't drink more than a glass of wine or even a full beer is too much now that I'm a lot more keto adapted. Mm-hmm. But, hey, I wanted to ask you about fasting. I read your post about fasting that you're 24 hour fast and then you were hungry, more hungry later. And I, um, I had a similar experience. I fasted for four days. And then after that, I just was much hungrier than I was before I had done the fast and and sustained hunger. So it wasn't a short-term thing. Yeah, there was a period when I tried uh, fasting for a full day every Monday for a month. And so that's maybe a 36-hour fast because there's dinner and then you don't eat until the, the second day after. So it's more than 24 hours. And I mostly was okay with it, but on one of the days I just felt ravenous and I thought, well, I'm just, I don't want, I, I distrust, that is, I trust hunger. I don't, I, I feel like if my body is sending me the signal that it needs fuel, then regardless of what I wanted it to be doing, it must not be doing that. <laughs> And so it's calling for fuel. I don't want it to take it from my lean mass. I think there's there's a great controversy right now about how long you can safely fast with Finney on the one hand saying, I, I think what he says is that you basically can't go for more than about a day before it starts to compromise your lean mass. And other people saying that as if you, once you're, if you're adapted to it, the, it, you really don't lose very much, and I'm not sure what the truth behind that is. But since that post, I have tried it a couple of more times. I did it for three days once, and I got very hungry on the second day in the evening, but I had a glass of very fatty broth, and the hunger went away, so I thought, okay, that's fine. And then I wasn't very eager to do it again because of that experience. I don't like that kind of discomfort. But I had agreed in advance to do an experiment with Dave Feldman. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's been doing some experiments with cholesterol testing, showing some oh, yes, I am. incredibly yeah. interesting things. And so... I had agreed to participate in a group experiment during KetoFest, which involved fasting and then feasting, and it was three days of fasting, which I did because I had agreed, and it actually turned out to be no problem at all. So I'm wondering if it gets easier over time to do that or not, and I have all kinds of questions about fasting now, actually, as well. <laughs> yeah, I um, I was exercising regularly during the fast, and I had a really, I had, I did some intervals in the, like, on the day three, mm-hmm. 
after that, and I don't know if it was the process of autophagy or like I just felt bad. And um, after the intervals I, during the fast, after during the fast, so I did on my bike. So I did um, bike intervals. And I got back from the bike and I was like, you know, I'm feeling really the, and I was feeling great until that point. And um, then I was decided I was going to start doing some more magnesium and salt. Mm-hmm. Because maybe I was low on electrolytes. I kept doing the electrolytes and I wasn't feeling better and I wasn't feeling better. And then I decided to eat, but so I was cooking some hamburger. And before the hamburger was even cooked, I was starting to feel better. So I don't know if it was the electrolytes that were finally kicking in. I started eating hamburger. At the point, by the time the hamburger was cooked, I was like, I'm not really that hungry. And I probably should continue the fast but then I was like you know when I have it done I might as well take the fast because I was traveling the next day and I I try not to like it's hard for me to to stick to a program when I'm traveling with other people mm-hmm. like oh I'm not gonna have anything so I ended the fast and then since then I really haven't been able to get into the groove of fasting again but I've been busy so I haven't even you know I tried a little shorter fast but I have two thoughts in response to that. The first one is I'm very curious about how your interval performance was because one thing that I did do was put my weightlifting session at the end of my fast, and I found that it, you know, there's always variability, but it seemed like my performance in the weightlifting was quite significantly improved while at the peak of that fast, but I but I immediately did, uh, well, not immediately, but that day I did eat again, so I didn't have the experience of doing that in the middle of the fast. So I'm wondering what your experience with well, the intervals was. Yeah, they were fine. I don't think they were as fast as, they weren't as fast as intervals I had done before, but they were, they were comparable, so it wasn't... So neither better nor worse. Intervals. Right. Well, they were a little worse, but not not much worse. So they weren't significantly worse. They weren't as good if I had been eating or had like car, you know, carb loaded, but they were decent. So it wasn't, they weren't pitiful. So the, and I could get my heart rate up and I don't know if this is something that you've noticed, but as an endurance athlete, I noticed that when you're in a really deep state of ketosis in the after fang for a while, there's, you're not exhausting. People are breathe hard because they're exhausting um, carbon dioxide and lactate. Like it's, mm-hmm. they're getting, trying to get rid of t- that out of their system. But when you are not burning, it was uh, interesting to see my heart rate climb and not to breathe hard. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. The other thing that I thought of while you were telling that story was about eating differently while traveling. I think we have a lot of context built up in which we make certain agreements with ourselves, and I don't have a big unified theory about this, but I've noticed that some people will say, well, I always eat cookies in the airport, so it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I'm hopeless when I get to the airport, I just can't not do that because that's what I do. But I've also noticed other people have decided, well, Traveling is such a pain with food that I might as well just fast when I travel. And so I know a lot of people who don't have, don't fast 
normally in their, I'm still talking ketogenic people, but they don't do a lot of fasting, but whenever they travel, they fast. And I find this context-dependent rule idea really interesting. I wonder if we could bootstrap it in a way that would be helpful to us. I went to see Tony Robbins in New York, and that's all he talks about is context and um, changing your state. You know, you're, uh, we train ourselves, just like I'm trained when I'm in social settings, like if people offer me food, that I have a hard time saying no, even though I know that that's conditioning that I put in there. And um, I'm sure that there's a lot of things we do like that, just like traveling. When I'm traveling by myself, I don't have a hard time fasting because I'm fine with not eating in airports. But I notice when other people are eating, I still have that social conditioning where I will pick foods just because um, we're all eating together. Yeah. So that, I definitely have some issues around that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but don't be hard on yourself. (laughs) Yeah, but it it is true. It's like what we tell ourselves is um, studied much on on how the brain works, like in what we think is real. You know, if you tell yourself something's real, it becomes real to you. Yeah. And um, like neuroscience. Yeah. Are you familiar with Joel Dispenza? No. And... um, he does writes a lot about neuroscience, and so does Tony Robbins. Does the neuro linguistic programming? And there's a, um, quite a few people who do that. But yeah. a friend of mine is an instructor for Joe Dispenza, and she's a therapist. And that's all she talked. <laughs> that's all she talked about, about. Like you've programmed yourself to eat around company. That's why you do it. You just need to learn to program yourself not to make it something like, oh, I'm embarrassed to eat in front of people, and then I would. <laughs> then it would be a different story that I would be telling myself and easier to avoid the food. Yes. Stories can be amazingly powerful. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Aside from writing your blog and programming, what do you have in the works? So what I have going on right now is I have gotten to this point of huge discomfort with not being able to keep up with my blog as much as I wanted to and I also feel like I have at least one, probably two or three books in me that want to come out. And so I've been trying to juggle career life and my family life and my writing life, and I just felt like it was all suffering. So I finally threw all caution to the wind, <laughs> not really, but I, I put aside some savings and I quit my job so that I could focus on writing, and that's what I did that very recently, and that's what I'm focusing on right now. So I want to put together a book, and I want to write more blog posts and research more because that's where my passion is really driving me right now. That's very exciting. I'm excited to hear about to read your book whenever it's done. Thank you. I did a similar thing. <laughs> the... Uh... I felt like I was divided between my in-home personal training clients. I train senior citizens in their home. And then I also organized a meditation retreat. Wow, wonderful. And and also have my online endurance coaching clients. And I decided that my real passion is in endurance coaching and working with clients online. So that I quit the other two jobs and took a, a big pay cut and... I managed my budget to make it a little leaner and uh, 
and jumped right in. So it's a excellent. It's I don't know how, how it is for you. It's a little scary for me. I had like a little mini. I wouldn't say nervous breakdown, but um, feet of overwhelm because I had decided to focus on one thing and then. I tried to focus on that one thing and I could think of like my list of things I needed to do for that one thing to promote my online business was huge. And Yes. <laughs> Isn't it funny? <laughs> you took away all these things and you're still overwhelmed. <laughs> yes. Well, actually I was able to become more clear. I think it's just the talk about being busy, the habit of being busy or yes. the habit of, of having all these other commitments and that was what I was used to and to narrow it down to one commitment was uh was a lot different the focus and clarity is so important I it, it was terrifying for me because the career that I was leading seemed so stable and I and I actually loved it I loved programming and so it was really fulfilling for me in a way that I know I'm going to start missing eventually um, and to dive into something is not necessarily lucrative and and just have that trust that w- whatever happens with it, I'm going to be okay, <laughs> took, it, it really took getting to the point where it was harder not to do it than to do it. I can relate. I thought maybe you would. <laughs> I hope so. I I feel like I have to write the book that, that I want to see, but if it helps other people, then it'll really make it worthwhile in a certain way that I that I can't fulfill all by myself. Yeah, I think that's awesome. That's uh, exciting. I've, I've met a couple other people who've had some sort of recent big shifts in a similar way. Thank you for the it's, maybe that's It's exciting to hear, and, and I can understand the the scary part of it. <laughs> so, yeah. The more resistance there is instead of saying, you know what, it's just going to take as long as it takes. Yeah. That's, that's a great perspective. I think that's a, a great piece of wisdom actually, because when, at least for me, when I give myself a really deadlines can be helpful, but if I am task mastering myself, and really getting on my own case about how quickly this is happening, then I, I it seems like it's really easy to get focused on failure <laughs> rather than just saying, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do it right, and we're gonna if it takes me longer than I had hoped, then it I hopefully will have learned something from that and it will be worth it. But it's taken me a long time to get that message through to myself because if I, you know, I only have a certain amount of time to give this experiment a try and I don't want to fail because I, because I was lazy about it. (laughs) If you see what I mean. I understand completely. And I found, I don't know how long you've been working since you've quit your job. I mean, I'm at like probably two and a half months in. So not not terribly long, and uh, maybe not even two and a half months, probably two months. And uh, I would just, when I was trying to work on things, I would just sit in front of the computer. I'm like, I'm going to be like, a, um, I don't know if you've read The Art of, um, the War of Art no. by Stephen Pressfield. No. 
Oh, it's a good book for creativity. So it's um, it's all about being creative and producing uh, a book. So it's The um, War of Art by, by Stephen Pressfield. He's an author. Great title. And yeah, and it uh, reading his book, and he talks about you know showing up every day and having a routine and a habit. And I was trying to to be really pretty specific with my routine and habit but then I would just sit in front of the computer and try to type and nothing came to me mm-hmm. so, and then I would be so um, irritated with myself that I would be like I'm just going to sit here longer and work on it longer <laughs> and then, so I, I then um, decided that that was not working so I started using a um, Pomodoro timer yes. so I don't know if you're familiar with that but that that really helped me because then I'm only focusing for 25 minutes. Uh, I tried the uh, 32-8 and 32 um, minutes working and 8 minutes off seemed like I was not as productive as if I did the 25 minutes on and then the 5 minutes off. And in the 5 minutes, I would just walk around the block just to sort of get outside and clear my head. And uh, that seemed to really help me be more productive. That's really interesting that what seems on the face of it a, a small difference in time could have that much of an effect. But I think, you know, focus is limited. It's it's well understood that you you can you can learn more sometimes by having two sessions once a week rather than having one session twice as long or even maybe more than twice as long, won't be as effective because your brain just, it goes in cycles and focus is limited even if you've practiced. So your routine now includes, its you're still using the Pomodoro technique and you yes. you commit to a certain number of those a day during a certain time frame? Or that well, works? I do my work, what I do is, when I get up in the morning, I go do my workout, and then I come home, and before I even shower anything, I do the Tony Robbins um, priming. It's this exercise, that they, a breathing exercise, and then a meditation on focusing on things you're grateful for, the people you love in your life, and then the goals that you have, and visualizing what you want to accomplish. And then I take a shower, change my clothes, and then I get in front of the computer. And then the Pomodoro, I use a thing called complice.co. And um, it fill, you fill it in, like each thing you want to accomplish. So I fill it in, and I've learned not to put too many, because then I just feel defeated if yeah. I don't get those done. And then I don't have a specific time limit on how many, like, I'm going to spend so many Pomodoros on that. I just put the first things for, I tend to put the easy things first so I get a win early on. Mm-hmm. And then the harder things, then I just go through until, like, I um, typically I don't eat, like, lunch till like, 1 or 2. And then um, take a break and then come back and work for another 2 hours. And then um, I'm done at dinner. And I typically try not to do um more work at like i try to stick to a schedule and not not go crazy in the evening sometimes if i have clients that have questions or 
things that I have to update on those, I'll, I'll work on those. But aside from that, like after about, um, 6.30, I'm done for the rest of the day. Nice. Cause I feel like when I try to work on it too much, I'm not very, it actually makes it worse. I'm less productive. Yes. I've learned that the hard way as is my want for learning things. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I imagine you sound like you have probably a, a learning or information addiction like I do. I uh, love conferences and to read books and learn new things. Uh, when I'm at the gym and riding my bike, I'm listening to books mm-hmm. and trying to even be productive that way. But I think sometimes being addicted to productivity um, doesn't necessarily make me more productive either. I was watching a TED Talk this morning by, I think it's the lady who wrote Pray, Eat, Love, or Eat, Pray, Love. I didn't read the book. But the TED Talk was, it was there's two types of people in the world, or it wasn't even a TED Talk, it was an interview, but two types of people in the world, the people who are like super focused and jackhammers and are dig, dig, digging, dig, dig, digging, and trying to get towards their goal, and sometimes they reach it, sometimes they don't. And then... um there's the hummingbird that goes from flower to flower, sort of just following where the um, the mood rises to them, and then they end up on the flower or end up in the place that they had always wanted to be. So definitely, um, I am a jackhammer, but I probably could learn. I probably have a little bit of hummingbird in me too. So yeah, I've been. I've definitely been in both places. But I've deliberately been trying to foster that kind of hummingbird idea because if you do, if it's true, and this for me is still in an experimental stage, but if you actually do end up in the place that you want to be, you might as well be having fun on the way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> I definitely have... Uh, Probably I was more jackhammer and less hummingbird in the past, and I'm I'm probably still a lot jackhammer, but more hummingbird. So it's a it's a it's a work in progress. Absolutely. So, well, I, we've been talking for over an hour, and I don't want to take up all your time, but I so appreciate talking to you, Amber, and learning about the wonderful things things you're doing and I'm super excited to read your book and I know that there are probably others out there who are excited to hear about that as well. Thank you. I have really enjoyed this conversation as well and I'm so delighted that you invited me. So thank you very much for that. You're welcome and I will try to get it edited and put up as soon as possible. My editing skills are, are not necessarily the fastest or the best. But, uh, That's a really neat skill. I, yeah, so developing. I, yeah, the, I don't know if you've um, ever listened to Rob Wolf's The Paleo Solution. Yeah. And he he talks about, he goes, we don't edit. We just put it up there. Wow. It just makes life easier. And so I'm like, I sort of go from that sort of mindset that, I just do as minimal as possible, like take off a little bit of the talking in the front and talking in the end and add my intro in there. But uh, 
you know, Joe Rogan doesn't edit. He just talks and Brawl Wolf, and they seem to be very successful, so. Yeah, well, that's as long as somebody didn't say something that they really, really don't want anybody to hear, it's nice, it's authentic well, if you can keep that intact. Yeah. Well, I do. If someone says, hey, please don't put that on there, I'll take that right. out. Right, yeah, so, of course. Yes, I will, I'll honor that. But otherwise, if um, I don't do too much extra work on it, I try to make the sound, the volume the same. So one person isn't much louder than the other. And aside from that, then it's about the extent of it. Cool. Well, I will send you a copy, a, a link, as soon as I get it up there. And then, of course, I'll put it on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, everywhere that I can put it. So. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I'm really glad that you reached out to me. I am too. It was great talking to you, and I hope to someday meet you in person because you sound pretty cool. That would be great. I would look forward to that. 